Hello everyone, welcome back to the Early Education Show for our year, it's 2018 and this is episode 54. I'm Liam. I'm Lisa. I'm Leanne. Welcome back everyone. How how are your, well, I mean, listeners can't answer us, but I hope you all had lovely breaks and I hope they were fantastic, but really quickly, you know, Lisa and Leanne, how, how are your breaks? Oh, did we have a break? That I seems think, like a I long time ago. I, I don't think I had one. I'm having one, remember? Next week. That's true. Well, we didn't have to do this for a little while, which, um, but actually, this was the fun part of some of the stuff we were doing for the last little while. It was like, it got a bit crazy everywhere else except doing this every week. Yes. Yes. Well, that's true. So it was a good break, but I missed you both. Back at you. It's <laughs> nice to be. <laughs> that was. It was nice and serious for a little while, but uh, that didn't last. <laughs> I was surprised that you left a gap. <laughs> All right. Well, um, we we it's great to be back with you. We um, we're, we're, I'm sure we've got a cohort of our regular listeners somehow. Uh, despite um, you know all the best advice we can give, tune into us every week. We hope we may have maybe picked up a one or two new listeners as we go through. But um, welcome to the Early Education Show if this is your first time. But uh, the plan for today, we're going to be going to an interview Lisa and Leanne conducted with Professor Deb Brennan a bit later, uh, who was the co-author um, of the recently published Lifting Our Game report. But uh, what we want to re- we're going to do this fairly quickly because as all what always happens, and I remember this happened with our first episode back in 2017. There was just a huge amount of news and stuff came out in January and the first week of February. So I think we just want to really quickly go down the list of the big things uh, that, that, that sort of happened, just acknowledge they happened. Uh, we probably will come back to probably the majority of them in a later, longer episode. So um, you two can tell me if I missed anything, of course. But um, probably one of the one of the big ones was uh, the report on government services data release. So that's called... Um, uh, sort of known by the acronym ROGS. This comes out every year and it's just this huge data dump of information across a whole range of sectors, including early childhood education uh, and care. Look, I think, I, I, I remember I, I sort of advocated to the two of you that this might even be our first full episode. We would tackle this data in full, but there actually wasn't anything too sort of dramatic or crazy in there. Is there anything you two wanted to quickly add to that one? There was nothing to sort of let... I mean, the, the similar stuff we've seen from last year, there's still concerns. There's lots of stuff. There's lots of stuff. It's just the interrogation of it that's important. Yeah. But I think... Um, You've really got to get in there and, and look at what it is and compare it to last year and stuff. Yeah. I think the thing for me is maybe what I would recommend to people... And look, we probably will come back and do a little bit of a deep dive into the data later on. What Bizarrely, what I would recommend to people is move away from the early childhood education section of the report and actually have a look at the child protection data because there's some really alarming stuff in there about uh, particularly Indigenous children out of home care um, and good care and protection orders that I just think the sector and everyone in the community needs to know. But I imagine we'll come back to that one. Um, the, probably the other one is obviously the report of the Lifting Our Game uh, report, which is a really comprehensive and exciting report uh, that we'll be tackling in the big interview. So I don't want to go into that, but I'd be surprised if you're listening to this podcast and haven't at least heard of it. If you um, get a chance, go and download it, go and read it now. But the um, the interview Lisa and Leanne conducted with one of the authors, Professor Brennan, is fantastic. So just stick around for that. Um, and, if you, and I was just going to say, if you don't have time to read the whole thing, go to the recommendations <clears throat> and the way that the review was... Um, undertaken because I think that that has a really good chunk of information for people. So go to the end. 
read the read the end of the story. <laughs> read the last chapter first. <laughs> yeah. Good advice. Um, I think differently about that, but I'll keep that to my recommendation oh, at the end of the show. Exciting. That's a spoiler alert, everyone. Um, Minister Simon Birmingham, the Federal Education Minister, announced an extension of kinds of the Universal uh, Access, uh, the National Partnership Agreement for Universal Access to Early Childhood Education. So this is the uh, recurrent funding uh, to ensure that children in the year before school can access uh, for, uh, funded preschool in the year before school. Um, this will definitely need an episode in and of itself, and we're, we're hoping to maybe get someone on to help us talk about it. But this was yet again another 12-month extension uh, and this this funding has just been held hostage basically ever since the coalition government came into power. Um, and uh, but I think interestingly, the, the only thing I'll quickly add to this is it seems that that seems to be being recognised more. Like this seems to be really we're doing this again. And actually, beyond the early childhood sector, I think the media and community seem to be going, yeah, this is just madness. Why is this still happening? Is that just me? <laughs> No, I don't yeah, think so because possibly. I saw, I, and I, I think that there was a lot on the um, media that you kind of, you know, that is the every everyday media like Sunrise and, and those sorts of programs. And I think that that's good. Sometimes the quality of that is not great, but at least it's there in the conversation. Fantastic. Uh, and then probably two related uh, stories um, to do with the Big Steps campaign. So uh, we'll start with um, probably the biggest bit of news uh, that came out last week uh, was that Fair Work Australia decided to throw out the equal pay case that had been uh, before Fair Work Australia for about four years, which was uh, pretty shocking and terrible news. Um, if you go back in your podcast feed, we released a really quick bonus episode uh, with uh, the wonderful Martel Menz on uh, Wednesday night. Uh, assuming Liam edited, edited it all correctly and got it out that night. But um, we had a really quick just sort of our initial reactions to that. So we probably won't go into it too much here, um, but we really recommend going back and listening to that for a quick sort of summary of our initial reactions. And then uh, what was announced slightly before then, but probably is more informed by that decision now, uh, was uh, United Voices and the Big Steps campaign announcement that they would be conducting uh, more centre closed down and educator walk-offs on March 27th, where they would be, and they're sort of marking it as uh, keep your kids at home day for families. So sort of supporting centres to close and, and draw attention to this uh, to this one. But we'll we'll definitely be coming back to those two topics uh, in later episodes, and um, we'll look we'll be hoping to obviously get someone from the Big Steps campaign and United Voice to to help us talk of that. But did I did I miss any big news stories from the last little while? No, but can I just throw in a little tiny one? I don't know if people know Ross Gittins, who's a Fairfax economics journalist, and he's just released a story this afternoon, and it, it's a wonderful story about the value of early education, which he understands because he's got a grandson, and he said in it, there are no magic bullets in government spending, but putting money into early education, whether by lifting the quality of childcare or beefing up preschool, comes a lot closer than most of the other things governments spend on. So we're now a magic bullet. <laughs> Which is pretty good. Gosh, that's excellent. <laughs> we'll take it. Yeah, I thought it was too. <laughs> All right, well, stick with us. Uh, that's those lefty economists. Those lefty economists. What do they know about <laughs> early childhood? But um, we'll, we'll, we'll have a really quick break and then we'll be back with Lisa and Leanne's interview with Professor Deb Brennan on the Lifting Our Game report. So stay with us. So in 
our first uh, Early Education Show podcast back for 2018, we've got a wonderful opportunity to talk with Deborah Brennan, who is one of the authors of a new report called Lifting Our Game. And Deborah is Professor in the Social Policy Research Centre at University of New South Wales, and her research focuses on gender and social policy, especially early childhood education and care, family benefits and parental leave. And she is an international expert on the impact of private markets on human services. Deborah has provided advice to governments in Australia, Canada and the UK and has held visiting positions at the London School of Economics, Oxford University and Trinity College Dublin. And she's a former president of the Australian Political Science Association and the inaugural president of the NACBACs. She's the author of several books and numerous scholarly articles, book chapters and reports on gender, politics and family and policy. And Deb, we know you as being an absolute expert on early childhood education <laughs> and social policy. And uh, we're, we're delighted to be talking with you about this report because we're delighted about the report as well. So welcome. Well, thank you. It's a one, well, thank you very much. It's a great opportunity for, for me um, to talk as well. So I welcome this, uh, this chance. Great. Well, well, look, we'll start on the easy questions and then we'll get harder. Okay. <laughs> but um, we just, we'd like to start by asking a bit of the background on how and actually why the report was commissioned. And one of, one of the things that um, I found interesting in reading this report was that to me it seemed to be the first time that we're looking at early childhood education as a means to improve school performance rather than actually as a consequence of ECE. So it seems like a bit more of a deliberate approach to this. So can you give us some of the background? Yes, sure, and I'm happy to do that, um, especially as this approach is really quite new territory for me. So the background to the report is that um, my co-author, Susan Pascoe, and I were contacted in August um, and asked on behalf of all of the states and territories, uh, would we be willing to uh, write this review um, of the evidence on the connections between early childhood education and school performance and later life outcomes as well. Um, and uh, so the idea was that the, the states and territories collectively, and I want to emphasise that, because the, the collectiveness, because it's not all that often that all the states and territories act as one, but they... Um, they all decided that they wanted this piece of work done. And I think there were a couple of things in the background that, that made it an appropriate time to do it. So the, the most obvious one, and, and the one that um, appears in our terms of reference, is that the, the Commonwealth Government has commissioned the, the Gonski Review, and we're going to see, and we're seeing uh, Gonski funding reforms coming into school education. And the states and territories felt that the early years were being left out of the frame and that that was inappropriate given the um, really strong body of evidence that, uh, that learning begins at birth. So partly they, I think that they, well, I know that they wanted a, a corrective to the view that education starts with compulsory schooling. And then the other part of it, although this is a bit more my speculation than anything formal in the terms of reference, is that we've had an enormous um, public emphasis, particularly through the Commonwealth Government, on child care. And I, it's really noticeable to me how Commonwealth officials 
um, and even Minister Birmingham use the phrase childcare and don't and don't use the phrase early childhood education. Yeah, we've yeah. noticed that as well. Okay. You know, as I said, it's a little bit of an unusual way into it for me, but it was kind of putting the education bit more squarely and the child. Uh, more squarely in the education, early education, oh, early, what is it, this is? Whatever we're calling it this week. Yeah. <laughs> whatever we're calling it this week, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Let's Deborah, would it be thing. possible for you to give us the elevator pitch on the report? What, in, like, could you just summarise your findings in five minutes or less? Yeah, not, no pressure there, but... <laughs> All right. Well, I guess partly it's um, summarised in the title, Lifting Our Game. So we're, we're, Susan and I um, are arguing in the report that it's time for Australia to really lift its game in respect of early childhood education. Um, as a nation, we're really falling behind the rest of the OECD. Um, so we invest substantially less in early education than almost every other country in the OECD. Um, and while we're about on par in terms of the proportion of children in the immediate year before school who are participating in early childhood education, we're way below, so that's broadly speaking four-year-olds, we're way below with three-year-olds, so we've got far, far fewer children attending an education-focused program um, when they're age three. So we, um, we, we kind of feel, we felt um, as a result of a really um, pretty extensive review of the evidence, although it was concentrated, that there was um, a lot of scope for Australia to, um, to, to really lift the standard of what we're doing, lift our, uh, lift our funding, lift our efforts to get particularly uh, low income and disadvantaged children into early education. Um, and that if we don't do that, we're really um, foregoing some uh, great benefits for kids primarily, but also for Australia's educational performance um, and even potentially in terms of job readiness, you know, way, way down the track. Mm. Yeah. Sounds so, brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, when, that's the first conversation. Sorry, yeah. When I was reading the report, I was just constantly struck um, by how often I've read, even in your writing, the same things before. You said on page 76 of the report that the review was struck by the quality, um, quantity and consistency of evidence about the value of early education. Are you getting a bit tired of saying the same things <laughs> ad nauseum year after year? Um, <laughs> just, to, just to make you aware, Deb, Lisa's the pessimist and I'm the <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, I guess I, I go a little bit up and down on this. Sometimes I, I think, yes, I cannot bear to write this one more time. <laughs> and, other, and then other, but I, I think the, the bit of me that wants to be strategic thinks, well, I, um, I know that all of us <laughs> read the Productivity Commission report um, on childcare and early learning pretty carefully. And 
I was also struck there that the Productivity Commission had not felt as um, impacted by the evidence as I did. So I thought, right, it's time to, to go back and review this evidence and really put it out on the table again. And when, when I looked at it again and I looked at it with Susan and the fantastic secretariat that we worked with, we really were struck by, um, by the strength and, and scale and extent of the evidence. Yeah, yeah, and and I think the um, it's it's great to hear that because I think that that was something that people were quite um, I suppose disappointed in in terms of the the most recent inquiry. Um, there was an inquiry prior to that which was on workforce, which I think was a, a fantastic piece of work. And you've raised this again. You've got a really strong emphasis on workforce and secure funding and the importance of the National Quality Framework. And this is a two-part question, so I'll start with yeah. the first bit. Can you explain why the, you gave this sort of particular emphasis? Was it reviewing the, the research again that gave you this um, kind, of, kind of impetus to, to cite that again? Or was there something else that came about to make you really focus on those things? Right. Well, it, well it, um, it was two things, actually. It was firstly um, uh, going back to the research, which was the, you know, the main thing that we were commissioned to do and, you know, trying to bring ourselves as, as up to date with any new things that have been published and with all the latest reports from E for Kids, for example. The wonderful body of work done by um, the late Colette Taylor and, and uh and Karen Thorpe and, and colleagues, but also um, uh, international evidence about the link between quality and a strong, stable, well-trained and appropriately remunerated workforce. Uh, the, the, the evidence is just so strong. So that was the first thing, the evidence. And, and the second, which I guess is a, is a kind of evidence, but of a, of a different um, type, Susan and I had the opportunity to go to every state and territory um, and to meet with um, a mix of officials and people from the sector. And those workforce issues came up really strongly in our, in our consultations around the country. So, um, so I guess there were, there were really two drivers for that, the, the, the published evidence and the oral um, um, uh, evidence or recommendations that we had from people around the country to please um, put the workforce front and centre uh, in okay. this report. So that's very much front of mind for all of those um, parties that are interested in early childhood education. It's very quite, much so, yeah, yes. Right. Yeah. Okay. And, and also there's this um, importance of the National Quality Framework. So do you think that that's also kind of quite significant in people's minds, whether they're bureaucrats or whether they're, you know, whether they're, they're uh, people who work in the sector? Is that, do you think that's a firmly planted concept now? I do. I think that that came through really strongly and people wanted to ensure that there was funding to support the national quality framework and, and also really wanted the national quality standard to be taken um, seriously. Um, the aspect of workforce and, and one of the recommendations was around the leadership of the um, the leadership development and that was something that came out in the Mitchell Institute report recently as well is that there's no systemic support for leadership and I, I yes. was kind of interested in a personal insight from you and what you, you might have sort of felt that looked like after talking with people. I suppose that um, 
the early childhood sector is so complex now and even an individual service that can look quite simple from the outside, you know, a long daycare centre, for example, or potentially um, a preschool too, is going to have so much going on in it and it's going to have so many um, different types of, uh, of children with different needs, families with different needs. And, of course, in some of the uh, the larger centres, we're, we're talking hundreds of families and or hundreds of children and, and very large numbers of families. And there's such responsibility now on early childhood educators to be delivering on the early years learning framework, to be engaging with, with parents uh, and families, to be reporting on individual on, on, on the development of, of individual children. And when we well, we've only been able to scratch the surface of this, but it seems to me that the the preparation of many educators leaves quite a bit to be desired. Um, and that's not a that's not a comment on the educators who are who are doing a brilliant job in dif difficult circumstances, but often they've not had the inadequate preparation to uh, to really support them as they as they move into that work. So leadership at the service or um, uh, so I'm just um, grasping for the word above a service where where you have a like a mini system within the ECEC system, a group of services, for example. Yep. Um, I think is is increasingly vital and it is also potentially part of the answer towards the development of serious career paths um, in mm. the sector. So yes. I think it's necessary from a, a child and family perspective and I think it's potentially beneficial from a workforce perspective too. Yep, so good good for children, good for services and good for the workforce itself. Yes, yes. And that, yeah. we, we use the word... Um, um, a couple of times in the report. So we use this notion of system stewardship to try and capture the role that governments could have in ensuring that public funds are well spent, mm. even even though we might be operating, say, with the, the new childcare subsidy or the existing childcare benefit and rebate, um, on the kind of fiction that this is an individual subsidy for, for parents. What we're actually trying to say is that there's there's community benefit here, there's a system here, and yeah. what are some of the ways that we could start to acknowledge and support that? Right, okay. So that's a completely different view in terms of the way subsidies or, or in actual fact funding would be um, used and allocated. So that, that would be a very big change in thinking, that's mm -hmm. for sure. It, it, it is different and, you know, in one sense it's completely swimming against the tide because the new childcare um, subsidy system, as you know, hasn't even come into, hasn't even begun to be implemented and won't be until July. So, you know, we don't, we, we don't, we don't have any illusions that we're about to um, um, introduce something other than it, that kind of in, individualised funding. But we do think that there are things uh, that could be done to, to recognise the community and public nature uh, of the system. Yes, for Great. sure. Um, just back to the NQF, um, I loved the call in the report for consequences for those services failing rating and assessment. Why did you include this and what do you imagine those consequences as being? Well, 
it was interesting doing the report with Susan Pascoe. So um, Susan has an extensive background uh, in education and, and was the inaugural um, commissioner for the Charities and Non-Profits um, Commission. But she'd not had the same familiarity with the early childhood sector as I had. And when we began to look together at some of the, uh, the data uh, from a CEQA on the quality ratings. Um, uh, we, together we were quite, uh, well, I was familiar with the data and, and Susan wasn't. And so we had some really uh, vibrant discussions about uh, what it all meant. And we were both, both felt very concerned about the um, high proportion of, of services that don't meet the national quality standard. And I know- Especially long daycare services, eh? Well, that's right. That's right. And I know that the, the official term is working towards, but it's also the case that, that that means that the services are not meeting the standard. Now, we didn't have time to do the fine-grained analysis that I wish someone else would have time to do about which standards aren't being met and so on. But I think there are, I think there are far too many that are not meeting the first the first standard, which is on the uh, on the educational program, and it seems that too many services also repeatedly fail to uh, to meet that standard, and that just seemed unacceptable to us in terms of um, uh, the stewardship function of of government. Um, so we think that 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 government shouldn't keep making public subsidies available where services fail to meet the national quality standard. Mm. Hooray. Yes. Three cheers. <laughs> um, look, back to my favourite recommendation, number 16, which I'm going to read in full because I have a suspicion that it's an Ambert claim that you are sure will actually be ignored, but that um, Australian governments consider the optimal, optimal allocation of roles and responsibilities between levels of government for early childhood in order to address policy and delivery issues, improve clarity and reduce complexity for families, providers and governments, and thereby improve outcomes for children. Is it an ambit claim? <laughs> I guess to some extent it is, but but it is the, it is the thing that's screaming to be done. And having now, as I said earlier, had that opportunity to visit um, all the states uh, and, and territories, I was so struck by the how diverse the systems are actually, and there's there's a there's a certain amount of. Um, the, uh, Sorry, I think that pretty well every in every state and territory we came across very strong attachment to the system as it is now, and there's there's good and, and apart from in New South Wales. Oh well, <laughs> so, so you know if you've got um, in Western Australia you've got free preschool delivered through government schools. That's what people want, and and. Communities are very attached to it and officials and so on. So, you know, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, I would have thought there was a single, relatively simple national solution to how to organise ECEC. And I'm not as convinced of that in 2018. 
but I am convinced that we have to move beyond the incoherent system that confronts so many families um, uh, and observers and analysts as we try to, to make sense of this. So they're, they're, we really need some kind of a step forward in the allocation of roles and responsibilities. And maybe it's not a single national answer. Maybe it needs to be negotiated individually at the jurisdictional level. I'm not sure, and I haven't got the answer in the back pocket, but that is the one that is screaming to be done, I think. Yeah, I'll probably, I'll probably personally be the hardest always thought almost. that it needed to yeah. move to the Commonwealth rather than to the states, but I can understand if your state was all already doing a fairly good job of it, like Victoria, then they'd have more desire to keep hold of it. Oh, that's absolutely true. And, um, you know, there are some fantastic things happening um, at, the, at the state and territory level, and you can see... Uh, why, well, I, I believe I can see why it wouldn't be a good idea just to say, let's give all of this to the Commonwealth. Because, you know, for example, when we went, when we um, uh, went round to each of the states and territories and we were meeting not just with officials but with people from the community, in some of the jurisdictions it was really obvious who that was going to mean because there was a... Um, a state or territory stakeholder group. And that was a fantastic thing. You know, I remember when we went to the Northern Territory, we met with this wonderful group of very diverse um, parents and, and service providers, and they themselves meet regularly with the officials at, at the territory level. So there are, and of course, there are, territory is a great example because they've got so many fantastic initiatives like the, um, or not only the Northern Territory, but the Families as First Teachers program. So so many things are happening that are, that are really coming from the ground up and then being supported at state or territory level. And it will be, now I'm convinced it will be a terrible shame to lose those things. For sure. Because they are so, yeah, every every state and territory differs so much, doesn't it? So it is a, bit, yes. it's a difficult. Um, and it, it's obviously not just... Um, because it, it, that's very complex. I mean, Northern Territory is very complex, so it's obviously size is kind of useful there, but even then it's still a, an extremely complex system. So obviously they're doing yes. a great great job of that. So that's yeah. that's fantastic. I, I think that they are, yes. And, the, you know, then I mean, they're wonderful people in, in, in all of the jurisdictions, really, and some incredible initiatives. Um, and I, that's another thing that I feel that as... Um, a sector where we're just not sufficiently aware of those things. You know, we know what's happening in our own state and if we move states, we might know about two states. But there's, I, I don't think there's anyone really that knows about all of the eight jurisdictions and I certainly don't. And I think that there would be, that, that would be another example of a system stewardship function that I think the Commonwealth could perform. To, um, to regularly bring the jurisdictions together um, to showcase what they're doing or, or even to inform each other and not just the officials but a broader group of people from the ECEC community so that we could actually learn more about what's going on in our own country, what's actually possible, you know, with, with existing subsidies and rules 
and and share and teach each other about some of the imaginative things that are happening around the place. Yeah, that's that's so true because there's I mean every week I see something and think, "Oh wow, you know, how how did that come about or who 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 was the creator or the innovator there?" And, and you're right, Deb, yeah. there's so much and it would make advocacy to. so much easier as well. If yes, we knew yes, what was well, happening. that's true. Yeah, mm. yeah. And we don't. Mm. And it's such a missed opportunity, I, I think, um, because we really do have these eight laboratories around the place. And sometimes you think, how can they do that with their Commonwealth yeah. funding? Or maybe some secrets shouldn't be revealed, but, but you know <laughs> what I mean. There's a, and maybe there's it's... That's we could learn. Yeah, maybe it's turning that around because often we see that um, the complexity and the the different approaches to be a, a deficit rather than than a, a positive as well. Because you know, we, yes. there's there's a, a view that oh, everything's different, and if everybody's doing things differently, then it really undermines. But the the communities in Australia are so unique, so maybe yes. it's looking at it in a more positive sense rather than seeing it as a deficit. I think that's one of the things that I, I took from this experience, actually. Yeah. Well, drawing our, our lens back a fair way, and um, is I'm just going to ask you, when you wrote uh, The Politics of Australian Childcare, which is sitting on my shelf in front of me. When I went to visit Liam last week, he had it on his shelf in front of him <laughs> and it's sitting in front of me as it always does. Uh, so you have at least three very strong fans of that book. <laughs> this is your fan club, Deb. Um, so you wrote it a while back and yeah. I guess we're interested in you know, when you when you write those things all that time ago, you think things will be changed or the direction will change. So what surprised you most about the direction of early childhood education politics since since that was published? Oh, gosh, that's a, a question I could have had on notice. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just, while I get my head around that, I'll tell you that because I'm actually going to retire from, from university in a few weeks. I've been reflecting quite a bit on my career and I pulled out a box of um, badges that I had, you know, the, the badges from different campaigns. Yes. And one of the early ones was free 24-hour childcare. Oh. I was just thinking how easy it seemed then. You know, we thought, <laughs> we know what we want. We just want free 24-hour childcare. <laughs> And how, and how complex the world has become now as we've all had to get our heads around markets and subsidies and table yeah. rates and jurisdictional differences and all the rest of it. So I, um, I think that the, the best badge would have been who pays because I think that that would have taken care of absolutely everything. Because <laughs> that's what it, it comes back to, doesn't it? I mean, free 24-hour childcare is a wonderful concept and would take care of all of the workforce and every child. Yes, but that's the, right. the, yes. the difficulty is who pays for that. So that's always well, what, that's yeah. right. But, you know, we're asking, I guess you could say we're asking a different who pays question in lifting our game. We're asking who pays when children actually miss out. Yeah. And what we're saying is that the, the same children are missing out. The children from low-income families, children from many um, Indigenous communities, children with disabilities and so on, are missing out um, and, and they're paying, in a sense, because Australia still has not taken on board the message 
of the incredible benefits to be reaped through high quality, well supported early childhood education and care. So that's a, that's a, um, another way to think about it, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Could we just move a bit to um, looking at the issue of attendance versus participation? Um, I know. I speak- <laughs> Am I speaking to Miss Minister Birmingham here? <laughs> <laughs> well, I just note that in your report you say that Australian data on preschool attendance, distinct from enrolment, is very limited. But we've had both the Minister and the Opposition spokesperson speaking about nothing but attendance for the last two days. Yes, clearly there, there, there is an issue about um, enrolment uh, and attendance or participation. A lot of the people that we spoke to during our consultations uh, felt uh, uh, that the data were not particularly robust. We heard concerns about when the data uh, were collected. I remember that particularly strongly in the Northern Territory because I believe one of the main data collections is in August, um, which is a, a very difficult time in the Northern Territory. Many people thought that there should be data collected at more points um, during the year. Um, And also, I guess, that we ought to be focusing at least as much on the reasons why families and children don't attend for uh, longer hours in the week or or weeks in the year as much as as we're counting absences. So I don't think I can say any more than that. Okay, that's great. Um, how confident are you that your recommendations will be acted upon? One of the things that struck me, which look, I had to get right into the report before I actually kind of realised that in a sense what you're pushing for is a rejigging of education expenditure away from school expenditure and into early education expenditure because you talk about the fact that no new investment needs to be done at the moment. Is that, have I got it right? Is that what you're saying? And if so, Sorry. how so confident are you? Right. So we've tried to, to take a, a fairly light touch on this issue because we, we Susan and I were not asked to um, come up with, you know, specific funding recommendations about, you know, what school expenditure should, should go on and where the boundaries should be drawn and so on. But what we have wanted to do is to very strongly argue that it's artificial to draw that line um, at the at the moment of entry to compulsory schooling. And I think the other aspect of that is, to go back to the genesis of our report, our report was commissioned by the states and territories, because, partly because many of them are now so committed to early childhood education and themselves are seeing the early years as the beginning of a lifelong long journey of, a, of, of education. So I do think that this is an issue that, that does need to be um, explored. Um, and we had the opportunity to meet with, um, with David Gonski uh, on, a, on a couple of occasions, and that, that was um, really valuable. His, his report, of course, does, does not have anything to do with the, with the early years. Um, but he was very interested in our uh, in our findings, and um, 
um, I'll look forward to seeing his report, which I believe is coming out in March or April. Uh-huh. I noticed that um, it, you hadn't actually done the maths, but when I used mm. your figures and came up with it, it's 2.5% of the Commonwealth's or of the, yeah the Commonwealth's expenditure on um, education is on early education. It's a very small oh, percentage, okay. isn't it? Yeah. Very small. Yes, I, that's interesting. Um, I I hadn't done that um, calculation, but I had looked at the OECD data on Australian investment in in pre-primary as a proportion of GDP. So that's one of the figures in our report. Yeah. That, uh, that yeah, would have and it's, so we yeah, yeah we spent too low. Not, not yeah, not point two of our GDP. Yeah. Our GDP on pre-primary. And the OECD average is three times that, not 0.6. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny, actually, as a, as a little aside, one of my uh, young adult children was looking at the, you know, some of those rates of expenditure and he thought it was 2%. And I said, no, no, not 0.2%. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and even, yes. even he said, what? That's ridiculous. So, <laughs> you know, it doesn't, it doesn't even make sense to, to uh, you know, someone who doesn't have yeah. children or does so yeah. But he has been so in your long. household for a long while. Yeah. <laughs> true, true. He's probably been beaten over the head too many times with these figures. So. <laughs> That's right. But, yeah, really, we really yeah. have consistently under under invested haven't we yes that's right yes yes yeah. yeah, so to from your report total government expenditure on school education was 53 billion and in terms of preschool expenditure um around 1.35 and that's by all governments yeah yes so yeah it's just right. yeah it's just it's, way it's way too low but you see the other way we could potentially look at that is the 10 billion that's going into or nine or whatever it is that's going into childcare benefit and childcare rebate, if that funding were more focused on uh, on children and quality outcomes and experiences for children, then um, it, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could start to see some of that money as actually part of our spend on early education rather than just drawing this line between education and care. Oh, but yeah. Deb, come on, all we really need is women in the workforce. You know, children yeah. are just an impediment. To... They're just an impediment, aren't they? But we, <laughs> we, we constantly hark back to that particular issue because we, we, I think it's difficult for people to be to understand that that money is not actually being spent on children and being spent on you know it's it's a subsidy it's almost in some cases it's a business incentive scheme you know and so it's really it's that that's the difficulty because that's the perception that people have and i think one of those recommendations was around community understanding of early childhood yes. education and probably yeah. assisting them to understand that as well would be fantastic yes. because you know it does feel like it's a big spend doesn't it Yes. Oh, absolutely, and 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 it is. But and with, you know, with some modifications, we could we we might be able to actually think of that as part of our early education expenditure, which or a portion of it anyway, which would be fantastic. Yeah. But we'd have to be very serious about quality. We'd have to be very um, diligent about our workforce um, training um, and support, and. Um, uh, 
you know, I think there and there are some things I'm sure that we could do to make that happen, but not if we continue to say, this is the preschool bucket over here, um, and there might be a magic 15 hours in there for children in long daycare, but the rest of it is childcare. That that doesn't cut it. For sure. Yeah. That's yeah. me speaking personally there, right? <laughs> yes. As an yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, I mean, it was it's an amazing. A piece of work that you had a very short period of time to undertake <laughs> such an extensive review and I think it's I mean I, I think whenever something like this appears people who have um, been in the sector for a long time or who are advocates get take great joy so how would you like to see advocates use your report or used in advocacy um, up ahead? Oh, well, I, I really hope that people will, will have the opportunity to, to read the report or at least the, the, the sections that are most uh, relevant for them. Um, I, I hope that people will see that, that um, this is kind of a, a baseline document in a way. It's, it's, a, it's a document saying, here's the, here's the state of the evidence. Here's what we know about uh, the early years and, what, and the potential benefits of, of sound investment. Um, in this period of children's lives. Here's where Australia stands um, in relation to the rest of the world. And here are some things that we could do. And I would really hope that people will take that workforce section. Um, that if, if I would really like people to read and think about the workforce section because I don't think that we're going to get anywhere. Well, we, we're not going to get anywhere in Australia um, until, we, until we really start to take training remuneration, support, professional development, all of those things for early childhood educators um, really seriously. For sure. So I, I don't know whether you two know, but the Fair Work Reje uh, Commission rejected the um, pay yeah. equity case sure that. earlier today. Oh, that's so yeah. disappointing. It is, is so isn't it? Terribly disappointing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Especially when, yeah. I mean, you see, seeing reports like yours and then obviously that, that case has been going on for such a long time, but the evidence keeps coming through and you're, you're putting forward this evidence in this report again. No, it just feels very dismal. Um, so Deborah, I'd just like to say I've read the report from cover to cover and I loved it, but mostly what I love about it is it puts everything I usually quote in the one spot yes, so I can I just get everything from the one spot. <laughs> I agree. I, that's, I think that was one of the great delights was it's, it's yes, exactly that, Lisa. I agree totally. It's fantastic. <laughs> I do hope that people look, will find it useful. I know that, I mean, we've now got um, other very up-to-date documents, for example, on the argument for two, two years better than one, Stacey Fox's work um, and, and others advocating for two years of preschool. But I think um, what we've had the opportunity to do in this report is to link that advocacy with international comparison with, um, uh, well, that, that work also looked at the um, uh, cognitive and social benefits of, of two years of early education. But also, I, I hope that our argument about the potential for a di double dividend from Commonwealth expenditure um, might come through. Um, because it seems to me a terrible shame that if education and care um, drift apart, because that's not where 
uh, that's not where we want to head. And, you know, you will have seen that we dedicated our report to Colette Taylor mm. and she, she did such incredible work to try and bring the education and care sectors together. And if we can do that in a way that puts children back into the frame as well as workforce participation or if we can do a little bit towards um, that goal with this report, that would be fantastic. Yeah, and I think that, sure. that's great and and definitely it's uh, having that collective approach from all the, the states and territories will hopefully assist with that as well. So yeah. a, a yeah. fantastic, fantastic report. Well, so thank you thank, so much. Thanks thank for your you. interest in it. And, and um, thanks so much for talking to the Early Education Show. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> All right. Thank you uh, to Professor Brennan for, for uh, sitting down with Lisa and Leanne uh, over the airwaves to, to have that chat. Um, and thanks to you both for, for conducting that interview. That was uh, you, you did a fantastic job, Lisa. With the, you took over sort of recording and producing duties for that one. You did a fantastic job. It was so scary, Liam. I've never been so scared in my life. And I, I was just relieved that she was taking it on. <laughs> well, I feel very proud of both of you. You both did a fantastic job. Oh, Thank you. I didn't do anything. I just answered the call. So thank you very much. <laughs> but uh, let's move on to our recommendations, our first set of recommendations for 2018. So Leanne, what do you, what do you want to share with uh, all the listeners? Well, of course, I wanted to have my first um, recommendation in 2018 be a conversation article. Of course she did. Of course I did. I did. I, I kept conversation watch to see what I could come up with. Um, and as Lisa rightfully identified, this is a bit of a convoluted article called Kids Learning and Health is Shaped by Genes. And it comes back to the old nature versus nurture um, discussion. And it takes a little bit of a while to get to the uh, point about this. So persist with the article, if you will. But the link that I actually like within this and with the uh, Lifting Our Game report is the importance of bringing families into early childhood education and having that as a component of um, the, the funding and the programs that happen where families are supported to be parents and um, to undertake their roles really, you know, happily and well. And the point about, obviously, about um, the genes that people don't have, that kids don't have that affect them are the genes of their parents because their their parenting and the way that they're caring for children has an impact on, on their outcomes. So hopefully that wasn't as convoluted as the article was. Maybe it was. <laughs> I no, think it was I think fine. I understood it, was it that reading. way. Yeah. <laughs> I think yep. it's a good teaser to go back and read the full thing. Mm. Great. <laughs> All right. Go, go for it. <laughs> Lisa, what have you got for us? Look, I've actually got the report that um, we were talking about earlier, Lifting Our Game, which is um, the report that you'll hear, that you've just heard about. But the reason why I've put it on is because I just wanted to explain to people that this report, like, encapsulates almost everything we say on the early education show in a weekly basis and it's got lots and lots of facts and figures and stuff there it's big it's 120 pages and it'll take you quite a while to read but 
if anyone wants to be an advocate for early education and care, this is a really readable starter pack to why it's important and why we don't do as well as other countries. So I'd suggest having a read of all of it, yes, not just and, the recommendations. And, and just have you sit your fist ready and go, yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. every time you read something good. <laughs> totally agree. Yeah, really, really well prepared report. I actually was highlighting it with a you know on screen with the highlighter pen and Acrobat, and I must have highlighted at least a paragraph on every page. That's how good it is. Well, it gets huge plus points for me for a for a paragraph buried, uh, not buried. So that sounds like they've hidden it, but but um, sort of towards the end, which um, does point out the significant flaws in the government's new childcare package. So it was very good to see. Um, some yes, I, I was thinking of you when I read that. <laughs> so that was good. I enjoyed that. Um, and my one, just really quickly, is an, an article uh, from uh, Harvard, so the relatively well-known university in the US. Which is just look, it's nothing too flashy or crazy, but it's a it's a nice summary of the the sort of research on uh, practice approaches to uh, early childhood classrooms. It is focused on that sort of preschool age, as most of these are, but a lot of the uh, the, the 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 strategies. And a lot of the things for educators to think about, I think, actually apply um, across across the across the board for from birth to five. And you know, the particular highlights for me: literacy-rich environments. Um, it's really called out sort of time and time again. And those educator to children interactions are really critically important. But it's a really nice one. You know, I'd be a great sort of discussion starter for, for you know staff meeting or something to have mm. in the um, in the in the staff room. Looks sort of sort of, uh, sort of similar to the Lifting Our Game report. It's written in easy to understand language. There's no sort of research ease or academic ease it's um it's it's a nice summary of some of that research yeah it looks very nice and and concise a great one for the staff room table i agree absolutely all right well we have managed to stumble our way through a whole first episode for, for 2018 well done everyone we made it so Yay! <laughs> we'll be we'll be back in your feeds every week for the next little while but um uh, as I said, if you if you didn't get a chance to listen to our bonus episode on Wednesday, go back and, and check that out. It'll probably be just above or below this one in your feed. But uh, until we're back with you next week, it's goodbye from me. And from me. And from me. And are we supposed to do our Twitter names, Liam? Because I think yeah, you've sure. forgotten that. No, because I remember I'm... I pre-recorded our outros now. Oh. Oh, no. <laughs> no, I'm way ahead of you. <laughs> oh, no. You have been listening to The Early Education Show, hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs and Leah McNicholas and produced by Leah McNicholas. Find us online at earlyeducationshow.com and while you're there, it would be great if you could hit the Support the Show tab where you can become a patron of the show and support us for as little as $1 a month. We really appreciate it. Get in touch with us at earlyedushow at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter with the username earlyedushow. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. This really helps other people find the show. See you next time.